Hi, and welcome to Fast Talk Femmes, hosted by Julie Young and Dee Dee Berry. Our guest for today's episode is Dr. Dana Liss. Dana Liss is a researcher and practitioner. As a researcher, Dr. Liss has been at the forefront of gluten-free diets, gastrointestinal well-being in athletes, as well as FODMAPs and collagen supplementation science. As a practitioner, she is currently the performance nutritionist for the NBA Golden State Warriors and the World Tour teams Israel Premier Tech and EF Tipco, as well as the director and U.S. head of performance for science and sport. As a high-performance sport dietitian and researcher and gifted endurance athlete, Dr. Liss understands nutrition from every perspective, which provides value and effectiveness to her practice. Dr. Liss uses this depth and scope of her knowledge and experience to determine the most effective strategy for each individual athlete. On today's episode, we chat about performance nutrition strategies most effective for female endurance athletes. For example, does it make sense for females to implement the fueling for the work required strategy? We drill down on supplements and discuss those proven over time to be most effective for performance and recovery. And we discuss from a nutritional perspective, ways to avoid the pitfalls of relative energy deficiency in sport known as REDS. Hi listeners, we're so excited that you're here to check out Fast Talk Femme, a new podcast series that's all about the female endurance athlete. Here at Fast Talk Labs, we pride ourselves on being the pioneers of information and education in the endurance sports world for both athletes and coaches. If you like what you hear today, check out more at fasttalklabs.com. Hi, Dana. Welcome to the podcast, and thanks for taking time out of your busy schedule to join us today. Will you fill us in on your background and what you've been up to recently? Yeah, no problem. First of all, you know, thank you so much for having me on this podcast. It's always great to chat with like-minded individuals. Yeah, more recently, I've actually moved into working with the women's professional cycling team. So working with uh, EF Tibco SVB, and that's been, you know, sort of a, a passion of mine to work in, in women's world tour cycling. And I also sort of have a little bit of um, involvement in research, still involved with a little bit of collagen research at UC Davis. And I'm um, still working also with the Warriors, so kind of a very uh, different sport from cycling, more of an intermittent sort of explosive sport of basketball. So I work with the Golden State Warriors, who just won the championships last season, so we're pretty proud of that. And then I also work in industry, uh, so I work with science and sport as well, trying to sort of develop the U.S. and North American influence with the, of the U.K.-based company. You have quite a background, which I am really impressed with, working with both males and females. We're going to focus a little bit more on your work with females today. And I want to start out by just asking you, like, generally from a nutritional standpoint, do you feel like women should be advised differently than men when it comes to performance nutrition? Yeah, that's definitely a great way to kick off. You can get pretty confused reading information online. I get confused a lot of the time. And I've, you know, working more in uh, women's sport now, too, I'm able to sort of understand the perspective that female endurance athletes are coming from in terms of what they're reading, how they're interpreting that information. And there's also some strong opinions on, on, you know, on, on social media and online with regards to how um, women should fuel for endurance sport. And I, you know, at this time, I, I think it's still a bit premature to recommend that female athletes require, you know, sex specific guidelines in relation to carbohydrate or protein requirements provided their, you know, their energy needs are met. 
you know, I think there'll be further research coming along using sports specific and training related exercise protocols. But at this current time, I think, I don't think we have enough information to make those sort of hard, fast conclusions. And are there physiological reasons to provide different guidelines in certain situations around macronutrient intake, for example, or micronutrients? Yeah, definitely the whole menstrual cycle piece is one of the major differences. You sort of have two camps, I guess. You have a a camp that definitely advocates for training and nutrition to be tailored to a specific phase in the menstrual cycle. And then you have, I would say, probably a larger camp of researchers that are still very curious to learn more about how the menstrual cycle affects all of these aspects of fueling and and training adaptations. So, well, I'd like to think, you know, um, yeah, of course we want to we want to tailor to females as much as we can. I still think we're kind of in the infancy in this area of research. I don't think we know enough to develop recommendations. And more often than not, we end up sort of using more of a personalized approach with athletes rather than using more generalized guidelines for, you know, overarching guidelines for which phase of your menstrual cycle you're in. And some of the considerations are, yes, we know that certain hormones increase, decrease during um, different phases of the menstrual cycle. And these changes in hormones may influence uh, carbohydrate oxidation, protein metabolism. But we haven't really looked enough at athletes. And there's there's a lot of extremes with hormonal concentrations in athletes as well. And I think anyone who's researched athletes or worked with athletes would probably agree that, you know, some athletes don't fit into, you know, the population we may see in a research group in a study. Some of the athletes I've worked with, they're just on such an extreme end of some of the physiological parameters that we would expect that, you know, the regular guidelines that are developed for athletes are hard to adapt for some athletes. So I think right now for female athletes, I think it's prudent to kind of use best practice guidelines right now, which are generalized for athletic populations, and then develop, you know, and adopt an individualized approach that takes into account you know, athlete-specific training, competition goals, where they are at with their career, the development in their athletic career, and then personalized symptoms associated with their menstrual cycle. I think, you know, one of the sort of, I guess, reality checks that I have gotten as, as a practitioner is working earlier on with the pro-conti cycling team. And, you know, I've had a couple athletes that are really, really involved in their menstrual cycle and really interested in it, which I think is great. But, you know, using apps to a point where it was doing them a disservice. So they were, you know, they became so wrapped up in how they should feel during a certain phase in their cycle that they got so wrapped up and I should be fatigued at this point, or I should probably eat more carb during this point or eat more protein at this point that they kind of forgot to race their bikes or also had a good reason or went into a race going, okay, I'm at this phase of my cycle. I know I'm going to be more fatigued. Therefore, you know, it's in the back of their head and they end up, that ends up kind of overriding their race brain in a way. So I've had, you know, experiences with athletes where they get so wrapped up in how they should feel during a certain phase in their cycle that, you know, they forget to race their bikes or it does them a disservice. So I think it's important to be very individualized and try to, and try to understand how the individual athlete or athletes that you're working with respond to different phases of their cycle. And also, you know, a lot of athletes have abnormalities with their cycle too. And I'm not saying that's a great thing or a thing to expect, but it's um, also just a piece that we need to, we need to be aware of. 
Yeah, I could definitely see how it could become a distraction for certain athletes. That's interesting. And so when you're working one-on-one with an athlete, can you just walk us through a little bit about how you unpack their individual needs? Or is that just too (laughs) complex? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. First is a bit um, starting with kind of there, where they are at in their career. And I sort of, you know, just from working with athletes for, for 15 years, you kind of have an idea of, in terms of where they're at in their career, what their priorities are. So for example, if you have somebody who's, you know, a first year world tour rider and they've come from North America, they're honestly still learning how to just navigate nutrition when you're traveling all over Europe and navigate smaller roads and navigate new foods and dealing with new DSs and the whole logistics around European cycling that, yeah, of course, you know, the nuances of how your menstrual cycle or hormone levels may affect fueling are important. There's some bigger picture pieces that I think are still going to influence your, your performance and your overall health to a greater degree. So I sort of look at maybe a pyramid approach of looking at, you know, the basic fueling strategies. Is this athlete in energy balance most of the time? Or do they know how to fuel differently for different training sessions? Do they have like travel nutrition strategies and sleep strategies dialed? Uh, do they know how to fuel during a race? Do they know how to recover well? And then starting to build up into sort of the more of the top of the pyramid of we might look at specific strategies to optimize specific training or racing situations, and then possibly looking at supplement strategies and then manipulating body composition. So I think sometimes athletes flip that sort of pyramid upside down where the foundational pieces of fueling enough during a race are not covered, but then they, you know, they start jumping on the body weight piece. And that might not be their biggest performance gain. And oftentimes it's not if they don't have sort of the lower part of that pyramid dialed, tested, retested, you know, and second nature essentially. Yeah, that completely makes sense. And I think it's really dangerous for a lot of athletes right now with power to weight being such a focus in a sport like cycling, for example, you know, everything is based on your power to weight and it's easy to become overly obsessed with that and forget that you need fuel to, to go. Absolutely. And I think a lot of that information, and I'm very interested in sort of empowering coaches because I think, you know, a lot of athletes and, and Julie, you know, can speak to this. A lot of athletes have a very good relationship with their coach. Their coach is kind of dictates a lot of how they train, um, how they think about training, how they look at their data. And I think, empowering coaches to understand when and where that power to weight piece is important to highlight or important to focus on and when we might want to take focus away from that. Mm -hmm. Dana, I really appreciate what you said about the data. You know, I just, I have such a love hate with data and I feel like it's, it's similar to like sleep trackers, you know, and I think people get so in their head about the feedback and to me, it's just keeping that perspective as we need to use this data to inform, not dictate our decision-making. So really appreciate what you had to say there. Yeah, absolutely. And I try to like, there's, there's so many tools available now. And as I know, as a nutritionist, one of the, I think one of the challenges with being a nutritionist is you actually have to be quite educated in a ton of different areas. You have to really have decent education in coaching strategy and coaching science in psychology in physiology, in sleep science, and the logistics of a race or training, et cetera, that you kind of have to be really a jack of all trades, but then be able to really, really use all that information um, and kind of weed through it when it's important, when it's not, and not important to use. 
And, you know, with the amount of data that athletes have access to, I really try to, when an athlete, you know, may come to me or may message me and be like, Hey, I want to use this tool or this tool, whether it's a continuous glucose monitor or another different sleep tracker. And I really try to push them towards, okay, how are you going to use this data? What's going to be actionable at this point in your season or at this point in your career, that's going to be really actionable that is, you know, falls in line with the priorities that yourself and your coach or yourself, if you're not coached, have agreed on. And, you know, some of the, what I've found with some of the data, like, for example, the continuous glucose monitor piece, it can be really, you know, helpful for some people, but there's still a lot to learn. And I'm still, you know, pretty reluctant to use that tool in a lot of athletes because I find the stress associated with it, with the lack of education that some athletes have with using that tool and the lack of really knowledge we have, it's been shown not to be uh, reliable during exercise is that it can go the wrong way. So I think I don't, I'm not against using um, CGM at all or, you know, sleep trackers, but I really think that that data needs to be actionable before we add that other layer of sort of external stress onto an athlete's plate. And I remember you saying too, that with the glucose monitor, I mean, you have a PhD and it's hard for you to analyze the data. I mean, sometimes it can be like, you think it's this, but it means the exact opposite. I think there's so, like, you have to really, there's so many things that affect blood sugar that it's really hard to control and then use that information to make really conclusive, I guess, solutions for an athlete or suggestions. And, you know, there's, I'm sure there are some practitioners that are, you know, using it and having a, you know, great, great experiences. But so far, you know, if I have an athlete who's, you know, a little bit more stressed about a travel day or sleep or something, they ate something different in their breakfast, all of that plays into what those, you know, continuous glucose monitor readings are that I, it's really hard in practice for a practitioner to be able to just focus on that data and pull out something actionable. There are a few instances where it's been really useful for sure, but team-wide, I think that a lot of the athletes I've worked with have bigger, essentially bigger fish to fry where they are in their career. Right. The low-lying fruit. Mm -hmm. One thing I have thought about a lot, and I don't have personal experience with using the continuous glucose monitor, but I do remember during my career that the social component of eating together as a team was really important for the team ambiance. And I think it's really easy to lose sight of that when you're on a really stringent diet or you're overly focused on your glucose intake. And so I would like you to just speak to a little bit how you help your athletes balance that too, because I I do think that the social component of eating is extremely important and it's important within the team and just experientially and for us to all have fun, you know, doing the sport. Absolutely. And I'm glad you asked that question because I think that sometimes we forget about, you know, the cultural and social piece of eating. And that's, you know, a, a huge part of nutrition and eating and, you know, cycling exactly what you described is, is team meals. And it's a part of performance too. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And if that environment is stressful or negative, or you're kind of withdrawn because you're overly conscientious about a certain part, or you're sitting there with your phone, analyzing what your glucose is doing. I think that can take away from the benefits of having that tight, positive, you know, relationship with your teammates. And one part I usually try to work with on a team is, is one is being open with communication, talking about food, talking about body composition, body image, uh, you know, relative energy deficiency. I think sometimes we, we're, we're scared to talk about, 
you know, the elephant in the room and, you know, the power to weight rate thing and the weight loss thing is, it's all, it's part of endurance part It's part of cycling. It can be done in a very productive and positive and performance benefiting way. But I think, you know, creating those environments around a table with a team where it's a really positive experience can be super, super crucial for team building and team function. And I would try to work with the team to kind of be able to talk about, um, you know, the stresses around food, but then also kind of develop a bit of a team agreement or team contract of how are we going to approach nutrition and food and discussion around the table. And I think sometimes athletes can get, you know, a bit stressed of someone comments on, you know, how much carb they ate or they're not eating enough carb or blah, blah, blah. There's a lot of little sort of niggling comments that can get to some athletes, especially if they're really sensitive to those types of comments that just trying to create a team culture around around food and around nutrition can really make those um, experiences of having team dinners and team meals really positive and in a way performance enhancing. You're developing trust and relationships with your teammates. Yeah, I know when, uh, Didi, when we were racing, <laughs> there was like eating is cheating kind of yeah. culture. Yeah. And yeah. It just was not super healthy. But, and two, I think what's hard is like as, as clean athletes, you know, you are, you are going to look for those ways to find that edge. So mm. it's a tricky, tricky to navigate. So Dana, in, in endurance sports, such as cycling that requires a range of intensities, is fueling for the work required a good tool for women? Honestly, I, um, I think it is. And I, I use it in practice. I mean, it depends on the athlete I'm working with and the level they're at, where we sort of, the level of detail we get to, you know, their macronutrients and carbohydrate periodization. But I don't see any sort of indication of where, you know, periodizing carbohydrate or fueling for the work required would be negative. If anything, I think when you use that tool properly, it really encourages athletes to, and female athletes, obviously, to fuel appropriately for bigger, longer workouts and obviously races. And what I've sort of experienced a bit in cycling and women's cycling is fueling for races is okay in terms of like, as a generalization, I feel like um, riders are, are more, more likely to fuel well in races, but even when you're, you know, having big training camp loads and intensities, the fueling there I find in, in a lot of circumstances is, is, is not enough. So I think that, you know, the fueling for the work required piece is a really good tool for helping to educate riders how and when to fuel and sort of helping them understand why for certain workloads, their body requires more fuel. I think the one piece to be a little, I guess, careful about is the fasted training piece. Females tend to be less resilient to energy deficits in terms of how rapidly um, hormones change in, in, in not, a, not a great way. So I've, working both in men's and women's cycling and also just trying to follow the research in both of those areas, males are definitely more, more resistant to those sort of negative physiological consequences to uh, low energy availability than females. So I think that's something that I try to be a little bit careful about with some of the train low strategies. And I don't know if that necessarily falls into the fueling for the work required. There's sort of fueling for the work required and then sort of overlapping with that strategy are the train low strategies, which are, you know, different strategies for trying to upregulate fat oxidation or upregulate mitochondrial adaptations. I try to, uh, you know, focus first with athletes on when we need to fuel well, when do we need to make sure that we have more carbohydrate on board, we can fuel workouts so that our, you know, adaptations to certain training sessions are optimized. 
And athletes will always have to ask about, you know, faster training sessions. When can I do faster training sessions? And I usually, before advising on that and saying yes or no, try to understand, you know, where they're at with their development and also talk to their coaches too about, you know, what are their gaps and priorities for adaptation? What do they need to do to improve performance? And in some some circumstances, you know, a faster training rides and stuff may not be what they need right at this point in the season. To me, the the idea of fueling for the work required makes so much sense. And mm-hmm. again, I'll go back to when Didi and I were racing and we we're racing for Saturn. I don't know if you remember this, but we had a nutritionist and she really like turned me off because it was like the prescription was the same. And it was pretty much the same for us as it was the guys in terms of macronutrients, but then it didn't change based on what we were doing in that day. And I think to me, that's why fueling for the work required makes so much sense is like, consider what you're doing on that particular day in terms of training and then tailor the nutrition to that. Absolutely. And I found as a, you know, riders will often, you know, do a really hard or long ride, like six hour ride or longer. And then they'll, you know, sort of back fuel of like they did a really long ride and I'm come home and, you know, make a big, big meal and the next day is a rest day or the next day is a really light day. And, you know, what the fuel for the work required sort of framework has helped athletes understand is how to kind of flip that of looking at what your training session is for that day, looking what your training session is for the next couple of days and how your fueling is going to influence those sessions. And I think what I've also learned with, you know, work using that, that framework is it, it is a framework. It's not, you know, a black and white guideline of you need a moderate fuel is two grams per kg body weight of carbohydrate, but it is a framework. And some riders that I've worked with that are, you know, have been racing at the world tour level for 10 years have a very kind of different physiology and trying to learn about what they've found also works for them. And that's speaking more to, um, you know, working with male athletes, but some of the, you know, sort of physiologies of some of the athletes I've worked with are they're, they're unique. They're very unique. And so taking that framework and also then adapting it to the athlete you're working with and trying to understand, you know, how they experience different types of fueling for different training sessions. And I think one piece that sometimes female athletes I, I come up against is, you know, you're recommending, okay, we want, you know, try to get 90 grams or even up to maybe 120 grams of carbohydrate per hour of multiple transporter carbs. And there's a whole new area of research in that area as well is, you know, you'll come up against, I get massive, massive gastrointestinal issues or bloating, or I I just don't feel good on the bike like that. And then being able to then pull back and sort of work with that athlete to build up to those sort of optimal carbohydrate uh, intakes during longer, high intensity exercise. It does seem like in a perfect world, you need to experiment as an athlete Mm -hmm. and see how your body responds. And obviously for younger athletes, they're at the beginning of that curve, but Mm-hmm. I can see how after 10 years of racing, I mean, certainly for me, I think in in my 16-year career, I went, I started out eating, you know, very balanced diet, not really thinking too much about how I fueled. And then as I started working with nutritionists and being around teammates who did particular diets, I, I started experimenting. And I spent the middle part of my career experimenting with all kinds of wacky diets, diets that made sense. And then it was sort of like the last, I'd say four or five years, I, I kind of came into my own and I didn't need to think about it, but I knew what I needed to do. And I, I, I think that is sort of like the curve that most athletes that have longer careers tend to, to follow if, if they have the opportunity to learn and experiment. So Absolutely. And I think that sense. is what you just sort of said about eventually learning enough that you know what works for you 
is so key. And I find sometimes, you know, athletes want a prescription. This is exactly mm-hmm. what's going to work 100% your first year racing. And nutrition is such a gray area. So, you know, I always try to encourage athletes to, to take ownership. Yes, collect the tools, collect the knowledge, but then take ownership of using that knowledge and trying to do your own sort of exploration throughout, you know, a season throughout your career. And, you know, after a few years, you're, you end up getting pretty dialed and it does become intuitive. I've had a few over different races, different race times, different countries, different climates. It does start to get intuitive. And then there's opportunity to sort of, you know, see what's new and up and coming and what might give you that extra little, extra little boost. Cause it is a field that is continually emerging Definitely. and it's hard to keep up with. Yeah. It's hard to keep up with the research. I'm constantly yeah. reading and scrolling and you just always feel like you, you can't keep up. It's just such a wide field for sure. Yeah. It's fascinating. And there's a lot of crazy ideas thrown out there, but then there's a lot of really interesting ideas that can be implemented positively. On that note, I think regardless of gender, we're all sort of looking for the next, oh, well, most athletes anyways are looking for the next magic bullet. And I think supplements, in my opinion, have kind of typically overpromised and underdelivered. Although that's not true in every case. You know, some of them are a money sock and they distract from what really counts, the fundamentals of just good training, good hydration, sleep. And it's easy as an athlete to just keep chasing that silver bullet and its promise of performance enhancement. But I'd like you to just kind of touch on how we can advise more more well-researched supplements and how they fit into the female athlete performance and nutritional strategy. Yeah, great question. You mean ketones haven't changed the game of fueling? <laughs> they were sort of, yeah, ketones have come in and out of cycling in the last little bit. And, um, you know, still experimenting with them a bit. Um, but I, yeah, we haven't really had any in terms of uh, actual practical experiences, breakthrough revelations. But, um, you know, I think, fortunately, unfortunately, some of the supplements that have been around for a while are the best tested supplements. You know, caffeine, creatine, beta alanine, nitrates. Those are probably your bigger, I guess, benefits in terms of aspects of enhancing performance. You know, caffeine and creatine are probably two of the most well-researched supplements. And what I've sort of noticed in female cycling is actually um, there's varied supplement use. So some athletes using no supplements at all to some athletes periodically, you know, maybe dosing beta alanine here or there to, um, you know, some athletes kind of really, really dialed with this is how I use caffeine for a TT. This is how I use nitrates. So um, the best resource um, is the Australian Institute of Sport has done an excellent job of classifying supplements according to level of research and level of efficacy. That uh, website is really well classified in terms of like coding for ABCD and then having a really good summary of how to use best protocol, best practice, and then a lot of references for studies supporting the information that is on the website for that specific um, supplement. So that's like, that's definitely my go-to if I'm just looking for a quick summary to send an athlete of like, this is the summary of research. This is the best protocol. Now let's see how we would adapt that for your, your circumstance or situation. I think that nitrates are definitely one that's kind of come in and out a little bit of you know, nitrates were sort of the new next best magic bullet. And then when a little more research came out in uh, cross-country skiers, not seeing as much of a performance enhancement in these really, really elite, well-trained athletes, 
that some people kind of pull back and like, oh, nitrates don't work. And I think it's important with any supplement first to make sure that you, you know, you have the bottom of your pyramid dialed. The supplements should really be sort of the, the sprinkles on the icing on the cake, as Louise Burke likes to say. Then look at, okay, what, what are my goals? Rather than just performance enhancement, trying to understand what the physiological role of that specific supplement is. And is that something that my training is focusing on right now or my racing? And is it something that would benefit me? So caffeine, for example, it's probably, you know, I think every single paper in caffeine starts off saying it's the world's most widely used drug or supplement. And caffeine is really, really well tested, but I find a lot of athletes don't necessarily use it properly. And I think it's important that we know sort of, we know the, we understand the pharmacokinetics of caffeine generally. And then um, instead of just taking, okay, exactly 60 minutes before the start of a race, let's look at instead where you look at the parkours, look at the, the profile of the race, where do you sort of need to peak for your job in that stage or that race? Where do you need to peak? Okay, how are we going to dose that caffeine then? And what makes logistical sense? So I think that um, with supplements, it's not always just cut and dry with like, okay, 60 minutes before, take it there. Really try to think about the whole picture. And that's something that, you know, as you're later on in your career, that you might have the capacity and bandwidth to integrate into your whole race strategy. Whereas if you're younger in your career, man, you're just trying to trying to get to the start line on time with all your stuff and making sure you know how to yeah. drink and take fuels while, <laughs> while not crashing your bike. Yeah. Um, so there are, there are a handful that are well-tested and I regularly use with athletes. And then in some circumstances where, you know, we have a lot more capacity. We might experiment with some supplements as long as we have a way to measure the outcomes. And that's what I sort of is always a struggle is in reality, we don't have a lot of capacity to do field-based measurements. Like we can't always look at blood lactates in a race ever. So I think that, you know, using just your, you know, your best judgment for risk versus benefit for supplement strategies that are sort of may help, may not. And collagen is an example of a sort of borderline, I guess, class, I think according to AIS is class B. Collagen or glutamine are supplements that, yeah, may help, but I think, you know, may not. And you just need to sort of assess where you are at with your career and whether it's not, it's worth the investment. And if there's no risk and you have lots of money, then it might be something that's an easy decision. The Australian Institute paper sounds amazing. And we'll we'll link to that in our show notes. One thing I've found interesting and just kind of reading about supplements is just understanding the dosing Mm -hmm. and just particularly like what event does it target? What effort level? I think that's super important to understand because I think, you know, a lot of times we'll just try to implement in absolutes and just like, okay, nitrates. Awesome. I'm just going to take a bunch of nitrates or beta alanine and just really understanding the nuances of dosing. Absolutely. And I think uh, beta alanine is, again, a great example. Um, I'll definitely have athletes be like, oh, I take beta alanine before a race. And then not understanding that beta alanine is something you actually need to load for a while. And there's different dosing strategies and loading strategies. And we sort of look at, you know, your whole entire yearly training plan and race schedule and race priorities to then decide how, how we start loading. Because I'm also a proponent of you know, trying to optimize natural adaptations, whether it's buffering adaptations or, you know, muscle protein synthesis of really trying to sort of optimize what your body can do naturally and then layering in, you know, beta alanine or, you know, a buffering agent, for example. Because I, yeah, I just, I just, that's a strategy sort of I, I try to approach. But again, like the cycling season is, is long. 
you know, you might need to, you might need to be performing really well early in the season for classics and then performing well later in the season for the Vuelta. So something like beta alanine might be something you just take for most of the season. I think that's fine. I think it's just understanding the doses and um, how to best, best use that supplement. And same with nitrates. We don't have a lot of evidence on uh, nitrate dose per body weight, but if I look at, let's say, an NBA player compared to a female cyclist who specializes in climbing, I can't rationalize how that 400 millimole dose would have the same effect on those two very different athletes. So I think it's also just looking at your specific athletes. And if there's not enough of a body of research to inform, you know, dosing based on kilogram body weight, use some of the knowledge that you have to make, make those, you know, better informed decisions. I've heard it said you can, but should you? Yeah, that's a great, <laughs> Yeah, you can, I, but should you? Absolutely. Yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> Thank you, Lauren Bannock. <laughs> yeah, so good. Today's episode of Fast Talk is brought to you by Alter Exploration. Created by me, Fast Talk Labs co-founder Chris Case, Alter Exploration crafts challenging, transformative cycling journeys in some of the world's most stunning destinations. Alter Exploration. What we do is all in our name. First, our journeys are meant to be challenging. You'll alter your character, confidence, and resiliency in small but significant ways. Alter. Second, our trips are intended to be all-terrain tours on alternative routes. Pavement, gravel, dirt, grass. Alter. Then there's exploration. Our journeys are an exploration of both the destination and yourself. Change your perception of what's possible while simultaneously experiencing a stunning landscape. Enter Alter's comfort zone by leaving your own and be altered. Learn more about my favorite adventure destinations and start dreaming at alterexploration.com. So Dana, moving on, we will take a deep dive into relative energy deficiency in sport, otherwise known as REDS with Dr. Krauss, a sports medicine physician at Stanford in a future episode. But in the meantime, for the purposes of our conversation today, would you provide a brief explanation of REDS and help us better understand a couple of other concepts, low energy availability and the female athlete triad as they seem somewhat intertwined? Yeah, absolutely. And that's definitely a topic that's become um, yeah, pretty prevalent in the last maybe five, eight years um, across endurance sport. And you know, when I started my career, we only used the female athlete triad. That was the the tool we had to look at an athlete with an eating disorder or restrictive eating behaviors and, you know, the physiological consequences that are associated with that. Um, relative energy deficiency or REDS is a newer concept. And there's definitely still a little bit of, you know, sort of two camps of thought in the research world of which one is more correct. But relative energy deficiency in sport is a condition of low energy availability affecting both males and females at all levels and ages. And it has wide-ranging adverse effects in all bodily systems. And it can, you know, it can seriously compromise long-term health and performance. You know, we sort of look at reds in sport. And I don't always assume that an athlete who may I may end up working with that, you know, displays some of the some of the signs and symptoms of reds is intentionally underfueling. There are situations where athletes are just inadvertently underfueling. They are traveling and or they travel a lot and haven't really developed strategies to make sure they are in energy balance and have food availability and training, or they don't understand, um, you know, the, the energy demands of their, of their sport. Some of it comes down to just knowledge and, 
and education and capacity. Whereas in other, you know, sort of in other aspects of REDS, you know, you have an athlete that's trying to, you know, lose weight or, you know, improve, improve body to weight ratio, improve, you know, the performance, possible performance enhancing factors of having optimal lean body to, to non-lean mass. And, maybe not doing that in the best sort of best way possible where they're just in chronic low energy availability. So they don't have enough energy in their body to support their training, but also support sort of the normal, normal bodily, bodily functions, resting metabolic rate, plus that energy your body needs to turn over protein and make hormones, et cetera. And then um, what happens is, um, you know, after a period of low energy availability, which is, you know, different between individuals, but it's also different between females and males. And that's what I would sort of say is, I don't know if we've really quantified it very well in research yet, but from a practitioner perspective, and I think I mentioned this earlier too, is males are, are from my experience, are more res- resilient to low energy availability than females. I think, you know, the changes we see with hormones happen quite a bit sooner. So we know that there is a certain amount of energy female athletes need day to day to maintain normal, normal body function, normal hormone function. And so, you know, if you have an athlete that ends up, you know, under fueling day after day, or maybe they have a quite a few days during a week, couple of days, they're in energy balance. But what ends up happening with this sort of long-term low energy availability is, you know, some just changes, changes in physiological functions. And it's everything from immunological function to metabolic, endocrine, bone health, gastrointestinal function, psychological growth and development, cardiovascular, menstrual function. I said menstrual function already, but um, that's an obvious one. Um, So, you know, all of those different physiological systems become affected with not fueling your body enough. And when I look at, you know, what does it take to really support an athlete to reach their full potential if any of those physiological systems are not optimized, that can really compromise an athlete reaching their full potential. So, you know, there are periods where an athlete may be in low energy availability. Um, there are strategic periods where we may, you know, develop a strategy for an athlete to be in low energy availability, but we need to do that very strategically and in a sort of team-based approach where we understand what the coach is designing. We understand the race schedule. We understand psychology of an athlete. And so I think all those pieces need to come into play to really design a good strategy that, you know, helps an athlete achieve sort of optimal body composition without having all of those physiological effects associated with low energy availability or minimizing those effects. Seems challenging to accurately measure energy availability. Yeah. You know, in a lab, we can do it and, you know, we can do resting metabolic rates, et cetera. But there's still variability with regards to that strategy and uh, or that that science and the methods around measuring resting metabolic rate. Um, and I, I definitely, um, you know, more and more athletes, I think, are, are curious and they're trying to learn about their body and they're trying to learn about, OK, what does my body need? And we'll go in and get, you know, RMR tests done in different labs and you know, different labs have different protocols, which can affect, you know, the KCALs burned up to, you know, three, 400 calories, which I'm not a huge calorie counter, but it is something that sometimes we use. So I think that first, yeah, it is like everything from understanding your individual energy needs. We can use calculations to give us a baseline of what your, you know, resting metabolic is probably is. If you have an athlete who um, has been in low energy availability for a long time and is having some of these, um, you know, physiological changes, 
oftentimes their resting metabolic rate will decrease. So then they're um, having, you know, an even harder time losing weight because they need to go even lower to lose weight. And then all of those sort of physiological consequences are exacerbated. And then looking at sort of, yeah, just the whole measurement of nutrition intake and calorimetry is, it's a science that is not exact. You know, even things like almonds, for example, you know, with the almonds, with the skin, the amount of energy that is absorbed from almonds is different with the, with and without the skin. So there's like little nuances. Or if we look at an athlete's gut, and I did a lot of work during my PhD with gastrointestinal physiology during endurance exercise. And we know that the ability to absorb nutrients is compromised with intense and, and long exercise. So that even compromise or changes how your body absorbs food, et cetera. So there's a ton of complexity. And, you know, I think that it is, um, some athletes get really, really wrapped up in trying to nail down to the calorie or to the gram exactly um, what their body needs. And there's some cases where we try to get to the gram with regards to fueling properly for training. But I think that um, we need to understand that, you know, it's, it's a bit of a gray area with nutrient analysis and energy expenditure and to use that tool, you know, appropriately with athletes. It can get, it can be a tool that's really, really useful or a tool that's quite detrimental. I have a couple follow-up questions. Mm -hmm. When you spoke about strategically implementing periods of low energy availability, like what's acceptable in terms of that low energy availability, calories per kilogram, and then also how long would you use that strategy? Yeah, um, it depends on the athlete for sure. Um, if it's an athlete that has had a history of restrictive eating behaviors or they lose their, their menstrual cycle really fast, we're a little more careful about how, how we use those, those strategies. So the first thing is putting an athlete in low energy availability and working to change their body composition is something that's going to have a beneficial impact on performance. Now, I, and I'll be straight up, I work in high performance. It's not something we beat around the bush with in terms of like trying to not pretend it exists. It very much exists. And we're very much like, this is a scale weight. This is the body composition measurements. So I think that the one piece that I'm first prioritize is the dialogue around that. So if you tell an athlete, hey, you need to lose weight so you can climb better, I'm not sure that's going to be super well received. You might have an athlete who just freaks out and starts cutting energy intake a ton and eating vegetables and protein only, or you might have an, you know, an athlete that has been around for a longer time and they understand what that means in terms of, okay, this is how I'm going to plug in different periods of, of energy deficit or create an energy deficit so that I can get to this certain body composition at a certain race or a certain period in the year. So I think first is just understanding the psychology of the athlete and trying to create an environment from coaching to team manager to, to the DSs of a dialogue that's going to support that specific athlete. The same dialogue and same strategy is not going to work for different athletes. And that's not always realistic. I mean, I'm, I'm sort of describing a best scenario. Most of the teams I work with, it's a consulting position. I'm not there most, a lot of the time. So, you know, it's this sort of best case scenario, but hopefully most teams have, you know, a weekly meeting where you can actually sort of create at least some of that cohesion with how we're going to approach different scenarios. And then it partly depends on how, where we need to get an athlete and when we need to get them there, how much of a deficit we would create. But I usually, we'll usually use the fuel for the work required strategy where we'll, you know, look at their week, month training plan and figure out, okay, where are good places where we can create a deficit without compromising training capacity with trying to minimize lean mass loss. So I might look at, let's say, Let's look at, you know, Monday to Friday for, as a quick example, 
if they have, you know, a, a rest day Monday and Tuesday is a short interval day, Wednesday is a longer, maybe threshold ride, you know, you kind of use those three days to figure out, okay, what kind of fuel do they need for those workouts? When is a good block during the day where we could create a deficit? And it might be something like, okay, uh, Wednesday after they're sort of done that threshold work, we could make sure that the recovery meal is an energy balance. And then in the latter part of the day, let's say from 1 PM to when they go to bed, we still make sure protein intake is really high. So we're minimizing loss of lean mass, but then we're creating an energy deficit by reducing uh, carbohydrate and fat intake. And, you know, it might be 300 calories. Um, we, you know, you try to make it as, as minimal as possible. Again, with calculating how much exactly of a deficit you're creating, it's, it's, still, a, it's still ballpark. As accurate as we try to get, it's still ballpark. So um, it depends athlete to athlete. And I'm, I'm a little bit um, hesitant to give numbers, mostly because people might freak out at what we do in cycling. Um, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I might get some hate mail, um, <laughs> but it's also athlete to athlete. So there are some you know, scenarios where we do experiment with more extreme deficits, but they're definitely very, very short term. And then the one thing I've, I've sort of realized as a practitioner is a lot of times we're very um, cautious about, about what we do. And I, I am cautious too, but I also am in some scenarios willing to experiment if it's, if there's the sort of bandwidth and the ability there to monitor an athlete well. But a lot of times athletes are using strategies and doing things ahead of the research. So even period strategies where when you create energy deficits and how you create energy deficits without compromising performance or training adaptations and sort of minimizing um, you know, some of the, the physiological uh, decrements that happen. Sometimes athletes have, especially in cycling, have tested and tried things and know they're not measuring hormones and stuff after they come home from their ride. But they've kind of started to learn what works for their body. And I've learned a couple of good techniques from, from other riders of like, okay, I have this kind of ride at this point in the year. And sometimes, you know, I will ride for this period of time really well-fueled. And then if I have an extra two hours, I might pull back on carb and that's how I create my energy deficit that day. And the rest of the day, I'm not worried about it. So um, there's, uh, yeah, it's definitely rider to rider day to day on how we create those deficits. I try to do three days max and then try to have a day where an athlete's in energy balance. And that again, depends on how long we have to lose weight essentially and what that athlete's schedule is, et cetera. If there's holidays around, there's all these sort of pieces with a you know real life scenario that affect decisions that we make, ideally you know having a really well laid out yearly training plan where we can lay out and I'll sometimes do that with coaches where we have you know the yearly training plan in an Excel sheet and then you know all those all the pieces were different training camps and periods of different training adaptations are in there et cetera and then we layer in the nutrition and layer in you know what period we want to focus on this back aspect of nutrition or if there's a you know a period where an athlete is looking at developing explosiveness and working on their explosiveness or their sprint nutrition is sort of pieced in below there and sort of that in a really sort of linear way where we know that that is the period we're focusing on that and you know if there's a weight loss period or a body comp period that is very clearly outlaid way ahead of time and I think the biggest mistake that a lot of endurance athletes make is trying to lose weight all year long and not being strategic with it. So I think, you know, in a best case scenario, we have a very well laid out plan and we're able to really clarify this is a period we're doing using this strategy. You know, you spoke about, I want to just back up a little bit about just that situation where the athlete is spiraling a little bit, like they're trying to lose more weight, but the metabolic rate has dropped. 
How do you reverse that? Oh yeah, um, it's definitely not easy. Um, you have to um, basically convince an athlete to one eat more. Um, you know they've been using these strategies, and I'll um, you know I'll use an example that I think is is you know is typical enough in cycling where you you know might have an athlete that you know try is comfortable in a way getting a lot of their carbohydrate from fruits, vegetables, and dairy or yogurt or Greek yogurt. And they're not comfortable with eating, you know, uh, rice and pasta and breads. And so they try to convince themselves that they can get enough fuel from those other carbohydrate sources. You have to eat a lot of Brussels sprouts to get enough carbohydrate fuel, 160 stage, 160 kilometer stage race. And (laughs) loading that's associated with it. That's another story. But um, I think first you have to convince an athlete that this is the sort of long-term game they need to play. Any athlete that's been focused on losing weight and focused on restrictive eating behaviors to lose weight is not going to be like, yeah, sure. I'll, I'll, I'll eat a pot of Rex. No problem. There's a lot of psychology that I think we need to understand first as, as nutritionists, as coaches to, you know, first, you know, what are the food rules that that athlete has? What are the thought processes that go on when an athlete sits down to a buffet or a team meal and really trying to understand that athlete first Generally, when you're trying to do that, there's a lot of tears. So, you know, bring a tissue box with you. But I think it's also just building that trust with an athlete of like, you know, they're struggling, you know, there's a lot of, you know, stress around food and eating and fueling. And I think trying to help them to understand that, you know, the stress and the energy they put into how much they think about everything they put in their mouth, that is a huge external stress that could be compromising performance. So trying to get them on board of like, yeah, I spend a lot of energy stressing about food. And there's a certain amount of thought that needs to go into food as an athlete for sure. But the amount of sort of stress that some athletes battle and deal with every day is a huge energy drain. So trying to get them to, you know, realize that, hey, this is, you don't have to live this way. You don't have to operate this way just because you're in endurance sport or in cycling there is a healthier way to approach it. And, you know, in cases like this, often you'll have an athlete's like, I can't lose any more weight. You know, DS for some reason is telling me, you know, this is the way cycling is. My DS is telling me I need to lose weight. Coach hasn't said anything because they're male and they don't want to say anything wrong. And I keep trying to lose weight and I can't. And, you know, you get to know the athlete, you know, they've been using these certain strategies for let's say five years, 10 years. And um, you don't always have access to, um, you know, all of the laboratory equipment that you'd like to have. You aren't always able to do RMR. Ideally, if you can get an athlete in to do an RMR, that will give you a more data-driven approach to then developing a plan that is suited for that athlete. But in reality, that's not always going to happen. And I think some athletes that um, are sort of in those scenarios that I just described, they are data-driven. You know, they look at their training peaks a lot, analyze it a lot, you know, look at, um, you know, a bunch of other riders and figure out, you know, they'd like look online and social media and are analyzing all the different riders. And so sometimes that data driven approach does work for athletes in a, you know, in a, in a place where they have some restrictive eating behaviors or eating disorders. It definitely depends on the athlete. And um, if I do have an athlete that is in a, in a scenario that I'm not equipped to work with, I definitely will pass them on to a dietitian or a nutritionist who um, specializes in eating disorders. But I think that the sort of sport aspect of it is important for an athlete to understand and trust. But then I think once you have an athlete's trust and their sort of investment and trust in the process, 
that sort of next process of getting them to build up to being an energy balance and then energy excess a little bit. It's easier to get your period back if, if you gain a little bit of weight. Sometimes athletes have are so lean that they're just they're just not gonna get their period back. They actually need to gain more body fat to then start to regulate hormones in a way that's going to favor getting getting a, a regular menstrual cycle or getting a menstrual cycle again or getting their period. So I think it is a, it is a long process. And I think that um, picking a time during the season to approach that is important. I wouldn't just you know toss that in and start doing it um, at any time. Sometimes you end up for one reason or another, but I think trying to do a lot of that work in the off season is, is ideal. That's, you know, best scenario. It doesn't always happen, but then, um, making sure that you've kind of created that runway for the athlete. Cause in reality, if an athlete is not racing well and they're not climbing well, and they're not performing for the team, they're not going to get a contract next year. So I think you have to understand that as a nutritionist too, of like, yeah, you want this athlete to gain gain some weight to be, to sort of recover from reds. Well, then they're not going to race and climb very well and they're not going to get a contract. So I think that's something that's important is, and I think that's becoming more, more, I guess, of the culture in some women's cycling teams too, is understanding we need healthy athletes. And if it takes a year for an athlete to get healthy, where they may not be racing their best, giving them that time and space to get their body healthy. And I think that's becoming, yeah, just more sort of normalized. But I think it's important to understand and get the other team members and, you know, people who pay the bills on board with what the priorities are for this athlete. And I think genuinely, you know, most team owners and managers and do care about the athlete as a person. That's more important than the performance of the team. So that's been my experience. Um, I don't, I definitely aware that's not the experience across all teams. So I think just first is having that runway and then laying out um, a plan that your athlete, however they understand, you know, food plans or nutrition plans or however sort of tips and tricks are going to get them to be in energy balance and then in a little bit of excess. And then I, we usually get blood work done as uh, often as it makes sense. Um, that's a little bit different, you know, in, in the U.S. when healthcare system is different than Canada or Europe when it's a little more public, socialized healthcare system. So I even take that into consideration when when I'm working with different athletes because it can cost them a ton of money to get blood work done. So if you tell an athlete this is really important, then you go, oh, actually your healthcare doesn't cover that. Sorry about that. They're going to be like, oh, I'm missing a part. This isn't being done right. So all of those little nuances um, are pulled into developing a strategy for an athlete. But I think the biggest piece is trust, having a long runway and communication with sort of everyone that's involved in influencing that athlete's journey or career. Yeah, that makes sense. I think to your point, like just really gaining that athlete's trust and mm. that the athlete understands that your decision-making is in their best interest. But I also, I think it's interesting and, and really good to hear that you feel like some of these teams have evolved to that point where they really are thinking about the health of the athlete and not just like bottom line and results. That's a big change from our generation. I very much <laughs> think that the DSs were you are as good as your last result. Yeah. And I think, you know, if you weren't producing, they were always short contracts, one year, maybe maximum two years. And uh, if you weren't performing, you know, you weren't, you weren't going to get a contract or you weren't going to make as much money. And, and it's good. I mean, you, you see now there's, there's a lot of young riders being, particularly in the men's peloton, you're starting to see, you know, first year, like right out of the junior ranks, riders signing long-term contracts and, and the teams are finally starting to invest long-term. 
And I hope part of that means that, you know, they're providing the supports like the nutritionists and the physiologists and to help them and, and give them a long runway to, to develop and learn. So absolutely. And I, I'm definitely seeing that, that change. And I think it's something that, you know, gets me very excited and, and it's a very encouraging in cycling. Mm-hmm. And I think just more and more teams are sort of putting energy towards the developmental piece of developing riders, having that long-term vision rather than, you know, short, we want to win so many stages in the tour or whatever. And I think that's, you know, that's, I think that's definitely a, a more sustainable, healthier approach. And I think one thing that um, I'm also seeing sort of change in cycling too is the diversity of staff. I mean, spend a lot of time with staff. Staff really influence how things roll. Um, swan years are super, super integral. DSs play a huge role. And I think educating those staff in regards to, um, you know, what we've learned about nutrition and fueling and strategies, educating those, those staff is really crucial to helping sort of develop this this culture shift, but then also learning from those staff. I have learned so much from Swannies and DSs that I I never raced at that level. There's so many nuances to what's put on the table and what's available on the bus that um, I've learned more about the design of a a bus than I ever thought I would know. So I think it's important to, to exchange information, but also like what I'd love to see happen. And I'm, this is on my like bucket list of things to do, but is like, an education series for cycling staff, for Swannies and for, for DSs and mechanics and whoever else is interested, uh, managers, team managers, of just like sort of an education series of, you know, nutrition priorities. Here are some strategies. Here are priorities for cooling athletes. Like I think it would be really cool to sort of just update some of those, you know, external nutrition staff because a lot of those staff play a huge role again in nutrition. And I think, you know, again, I learned a lot from those staff. And I think that's something that, you know, you guys, you know, having raced and still um, avid racers and in extremely good shape, Julie, <laughs> Didi, I'm sure you're in amazing shape too, but Julie is a machine is, uh, you know, understanding, like having been involved in sort of those sports that you wear tight spandex. Like I grew up figure skating. I raced bikes for a while. So you kind of know from a athlete perspective, the, the psychology around body image and, you know, wearing tight stuff that, that is just getting tighter and thinner in the summer of like, what sort of thoughts may go in an athlete's head, especially if an athlete is, um, you know, prone to having sort of body image issues and restrictive eating behaviors of sort of understanding that. And I think that's a big piece in building trust is just being able to kind of understand and speak the same language and really help that athlete to understand that you actually do know what they're experiencing and, and what they're thinking. And that I think helps allow you to, to create dialogue that is going to be helpful. Yeah. I think, I think it's really important within the teams to have everyone on board, open-minded about using innovative concepts and, and kind of supporting the, the athletes in, achieving marginal gains throughout their career and always moving forward. But that's not the case on every team still, I think. I, I, I do think there's still some old school directors that, you know, want to <laughs> yeah. run things like they did in the 80s. And, you know, they won Perry roubaix in the 80s fueling <laughs> this way. And they think that might still work today. And and it might, you know, with a little bit of luck, it might. But but we do know more now. And uh, and I think to, to build a really great team, you, you need... You need everyone on board from the soigneurs to the directors to the riders. You need everyone 
building trust together and and being willing to educate themselves and move the needle forward. So. Absolutely. There is a phrase, though, everything was better in the 80s. <laughs> I think just the clothes and the music. Um, but yeah, and the hair. And I think some of the pro teams now are taking more of the Olympic model in terms of um, that whole sort of integrated sports science team that sort of what was more typically an Olympic performance team model is now getting pulled more into cycling, which has a little bit more of a like sort of old school, you know, cultural influence in the way things were. So, I mean, it's, it's all, you know, sort of part of the evolution and I'm, it's, you know, really encouraging to see, to see that happen. It's definitely got a long way to go. Um, and a lot of teams, it comes down to, you know, it comes down to money, like a lot of things. Some teams don't have the budget to have every staff member at every race, but there are strategies where you can just sort of, you know, kind of improve communications and improve communication and education um, both ways. Yeah, I think that consistency of messaging is so valuable. Yeah, just have everybody on the same page. Absolutely. And I think for us older, older <laughs> post 40 people is understanding, you know, the younger athlete technology and the way an athlete learns and communicates has changed a lot in the last 20 years. Um, so, you know, the one page explanatory, explanatory handouts I used to send athletes via email, that is not going to work anymore. So I think now just like really trying to stay on top of what's the best way that your athlete learns is, is important for, for everyone to just be impactful. Dana, as a nutritionist in elite sport, you're front and center in helping athletes manage energy balance. REDS has become a topic ubiquitous in endurance sport, suggested to be more predominant in female athletes. From a nutritionist perspective, what are the main things athletes, coaches, managers, et cetera, can do to reduce the risk of REDS? That's a fantastic question. And I think also in that, uh, in that list, I'd include, you know, parents. Because with younger athletes, parents are often the people who have their eyes on, on the athlete the most. And I think um, first is just kind of trying to um, understand, understand your athlete's personality. There are some personality characteristics that are um, associated with, you know, a greater likelihood of developing reds. And those are sort of perfectionist tendencies, kind of that type A personality. Then I think early education is the next piece. So um, sometimes, you know, we wait until an athlete displays signs and symptoms of low energy availability to engage in education. But I think the education piece should come early on of helping an athlete understand uh, what their energy needs are, what the energy demands of their sport are, and doing that in a way where they're not necessarily counting calories, but giving them tools and education to understand how frequently they should fuel how they should eat pre-training or pre-exercise and during and after and how you want to optimize recovery by having some, you know, protein and fuel before bed. So I think building um, strategies and understanding best practice strategies rather than, you know, always being like, oh, this is how, much, how many calories you need on different training days. I think that sometimes gets a little overwhelming for athletes, but just helping to educate and build in strategies early on for understanding what uh, an athlete needs to do to optimize their development, optimize their recovery, reduce risk of injury. I think those are the biggest pieces early on is, again, is education. And that's um, from the athlete piece. And that's all the way from, you know, like U10, uh, just understanding like what your fueling needs are, but then adapting how you deliver that education, obviously, to the the age of the athlete, and then figuring out who else is important for that education. Earlier on, it would be the parents educating parents, 
And then in some pieces, it might be, you know, the coach or sometimes strength and conditioning coach has the most contact and influence with an athlete. So um, ensuring that sort of the education and reducing risk around REDS is also at the forefront of all the people involved in this athlete's, you know, training and racing. And um, I think also just uh, food availability of understanding, you know, giving um, athletes tools of, you know, here's what you take to school. Here's what parents should have in the car. Hey, you've got one of those coolers that you plug into the cigarette lighter and has a little cooling thing so that you can have that fuel in the car for your athlete when you pick them up. It's all little sort of little pieces that add together and they seem really simple, but it's all of those pieces that add together where then you finally have an athlete that is, you know, well into their sort of pro Conti level and they're, they're fueling well, you know, ready to, ready to go. And I think one of the other pieces where you sort of sometimes, and I've noticed this younger and younger with athletes of, you know, part of this has to do with social media of, you know, seeing so-and-so has egg whites and salsa for breakfast. And, you know, these just sort of a lot of times it's misinterpreted um, nutrition strategies on social media. And so, you know, a younger 14 year old athlete may be like, oh, this is what, this is what this rider does. So this is what I need to do for this race. And um, that's sort of where their influence and education is coming from. So I think trying to get in front of that and ensure that they kind of have that, I guess it's more of a, a, a critical thinking brain. Um, and some of that comes from school, just more of a critical thinking way to look at uh, their sport and the aspects of their sport to weed out what may and may not work for them. And then also getting them to take ownership. And it could be like, you know, little tools like, hey, uh, as a coach, hey, I want you to make sure you have three carbohydrate things at this training session. So little pieces of ownership um, as an athlete develops as well. And I think the last part, and it's a little message that I find sometimes gets a lot of buy-in from athletes is when I was working um, with the Canadian Sport Institute, and this, so that's like sort of, I guess, the equivalent of the USOC. Canada's always you know, smaller. Um, but so we have a few different sport institutes spread across the country. But, um, you know, working with Olympic athletes when you're, you know, going through a quad, prepping an athlete for, for the games, very rarely, in my experience, would we have athletes with reds going to the games. And I think, or even getting to that level where they're in selection and I'm, I'm making a, you know, a statement based on my experience, but you know, what that could be due to is a lot of athletes who, um, you know, aren't fueling well and are having sort of those physiological changes associated with not, not fueling enough, don't reach their full potential and don't get good enough to make Olympic selections. So I think that's important to consider through an athlete's career too, is, Hey, if I kind of you know, not eating, not fueling well, and, you know, not really trying to, you know, trying too early to get too lean too much. I might just not reach my full potential and, you know, not, not make a team or not make the game. So I think it's important to sort of, sort of think about that too. And some athletes, when I tell some athletes that who are like kind of on the edge of like, yeah, I hear you. I know I'm supposed to fuel, but I really want to be super, super skinny because that's what I see on social media. Um, with these riders that are flying up hills. So I just want to do that and whatever. I hear you, but I'm not listening to you. Sometimes I'll just tell a little story of like, hey, and you know, this is what I've sort of observed is, you know, at that level, sometimes athletes don't reach their full potential. So, you know, I think it's sometimes pulls on the heartstrings when you look at it from that perspective too. Yep. As a coach, I can really relate to the idea of educating the athlete and just empowering them with that understanding because I feel like that's, you know, when they can really connect those dots it gives them that intention, that purpose mm -hmm. to 
to follow through. Yeah. Just, it's also just like finding ways to educate. There's so many tools out there. There's like an enormous amount of coaching, education, and nutrition tools online. And I think sometimes athletes and coaches get overwhelmed too. So, you know, it depends on the scenario, what the best strategies are, but you know, for me personally, I'd love to start at the school level. And that's sort of just, I guess, coming full circle of, you know, I'd love to start in the community in full circle of educating athletes and just having sort of a widespread impact. Cause some of those earlier education pieces are not that individualized. They're more, more generic in general. Plant the seeds. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> Dana, I want to shift the conversation over to micronutrients and how mm. that might affect energy availability. I know a lot of endurance female athletes really suffer from iron deficiency, for example. How are you working with your athletes to regulate and help them avoid the pitfall of iron deficiency or calcium deficiency? Yeah. So the first piece um, is probably one of the biggest priorities um, is iron levels and low iron levels, low iron stores, anemia. There's different levels of anemia. The first piece that I think is really important is, um, is trying to get regular blood work. Some of the signs and symptoms of low iron stores or anemia can cross over with other illnesses, issues, um, deficiencies. So like, you know, fatigue or inability to recover well or irritability you have a teenage cyclist, they're going to be probably irritable regardless of their iron levels. Uh, so I think that, yeah, you can wait till you look for, you know, you see signs and symptoms of low iron stores. But, you know, I think with the knowledge we have and the research we have around iron in um, athletes and female athletes, I think it's important if it, you know, you are an athlete, especially an endurance athlete, but honestly, all female athletes try to get, you know, blood work done, especially um, even just one iron marker, which is serum ferritin along with your uh, complete blood count, which will give you information about your red blood cells. Just get even serum ferritin done, you know, once a year at a minimum, just to see what your levels are at. There are some nuances with when you want to actually get that blood draw done, you know, just get the most accurate readings, but I won't get into that. But I think it's good to just, um, you know, once you have an athlete starting to menstruate of, um, you know, monitoring and see if there is a, you know, a flag for low iron. And, um, you know, if you have an athlete who does have, you know, low iron stores and start to educate around, you know, high iron foods and then supplementation for athletes who are a little, um, sort of more advanced in their, in their career. I'd usually say twice a year, get iron blood work done and then individualize iron dosing protocol. Yes, of course, food first, but I would say in reality, it's really hard to get an athlete's iron levels up with just, just food. Uh, very rarely will you get an endurance athlete who's racing a lot to eat red meat, you know, frequently during a week. So I would say, yes, of course, I, I you know, we educate around dietary iron intake, but even something like, you know, a, a steak, you're only absorbing about 20% of the iron that is in that steak. And then for um, more, you know, vegetarian or vegan or plant-based athletes, which, you know, it's, it's an increasing trend in some areas, uh, the iron absorption from high iron plant-based foods is about two to 5%. So even though we can get a lot of iron in our diet, when we look at the milligrams, the amount of absorption is, um, is actually quite low. So, you know, in, in reality, we end up supplementing a lot. So the first piece is, you know, recognizing, yes, we, you know, iron stores may decrease with um, bleeding from menstruation. If you have an athlete um, with certain flags that may be associated with increased iron losses, that's also something just to pay a little bit of attention to. Something could be a really heavy heavy, long menstrual cycle. And generally, you know, we try to get um, blood work done and then we look at 
as a sort of baseline serum ferritin levels and then dose iron accordingly, depending on what there's what an athlete's serum ferritin level is. And you know, if you have an athlete who's very anemic and their hemoglobin levels are compromised because of low iron stores, then that's in some cases when obviously um, a doctor, physician is involved, a hematologist is involved, and you you would get a uh, infusion. But um, it's really yeah, it's not something that's common practice. Um, I'm not against it at all. I've had a few infusions just from personal experiences with low iron. So yeah, the first piece is monitoring. And I think like for most female athletes, probably all female athletes, I would monitor your iron levels once a year, if not twice a year. And if you're more prone to big shifts or you notice you really, once you start picking up training volume and training load, you've noticed, you know, over a couple of years, you have a big shift in serum ferritin. You go from like 60 to 20 in three months, then I might get it a little more frequently and then be a little more, um, a little more proactive with food strategies and, um, and iron supplementation. And then the last piece we look at is um, for athletes using altitude as a part of their sort of yearly training plan. We know that altitude obviously is put into a training plan to improve red hemoglobin mass, which then, you know, theoretically would improve performance in order to do that and have those sort of optimal increases in hemoglobin mass, you need to have really good iron stores. And there's a really good study. It was a retrospective study done by the Australian Institute of Sport again. And um, it was a yeah really large data set. It was a really cool study, but they looked at athletes that supplemented a higher dose versus lower dose of iron at altitude camps and then measured changes in hemoglobin mass. And they found that the athletes who supplemented the higher dose, and I believe it was 150 to 200 milligrams per day, had a three to 4% increase in hemoglobin mass from baseline or the sort of total delta change. And the athletes who supplemented lower, which I, I can't remember the number, but I think it was around 100. Don't quote me on any of those numbers. They only had like a 1% to 1.5%, I think, increase in hemoglobin mass. So um, I usually advise athletes if they do have an altitude camp scheduled into their uh, yearly training plan to make sure they get blood work done about six weeks, six, eight weeks out so that we have time to optimize iron stores so that when they do go to camp, they can then, you know, get as much gain as, as possible from that camp. To wrap up today's episode, Dana, would you provide some key takeaways from the discussion? Yeah, I'd love to. I think it's hard to narrow down to, to a few takeaways. I think part of it is I, like, yeah, I just, I'm really passionate about trying to help athletes, you know, reach their full potential, but do that in a really sort of healthy, balanced way. But I think the first thing I would uh, highlight as a takeaway is create sort of your strategy in a pyramid. So think about, you know, the nutrition strategies and physiological strategies you're using in sort of a pyramid of, you know, where are your biggest gains going to be? And your biggest gains are probably going to be from learning how to fuel and recover and sleep well, and then moving your way up the pyramid to when changes in body composition and optimizing power to weight may impact performance and not jumping right away to, Hey, I need to just optimize power to weight right away. And that's going to be the biggest gain in, in my performance. So I think that would be the first takeaway is just really being methodical about your strategies, not doing too much at once, but really figuring out what's going to impact your performance more and starting there. And I think the second piece would be um, not to be afraid of carbohydrate as an endurance athlete, carbohydrate is, you know, the most efficient fuel for high intensity endurance exercise. So it is your friend. Thanks, Dana. One more question for you before we completely wrap up. If there was one piece of advice you were to give an aspiring female endurance athlete, what would it be? 
It would be um, to fuel and recover well. So fueling by, uh, you know, making sure you're eating enough um, in terms of energy and eating enough in terms of carbohydrate to fuel your workload and really fuel your body to adapt to all the cool training stimulus that it's getting at a young age. And then the recovery piece is just understanding how to best sleep and take in, you know, protein and other nutrients that are important for your body, really recovering and adapting to the training stimulus. I think, you know, as you guys as coaches can, you know, definitely sort of see this, a younger athlete with training, they kind of make leaps and bounds sometimes with, you know, their power output or repeated high intensity power output for different blocks. And I think that um, just helping an athlete to understand how fueling is really going to help them make those huge jumps early on uh, is probably the biggest piece of advice. Thank you. Dana, if listeners want to connect with you, what is the best way for them to find you? Yeah, definitely. Um, I have a website. I'm, I'm going to say I definitely don't maintain it all the time, but it's there. It's summitsportsnutrition.com. And then also social media. I do have social media accounts. Connect with me on Twitter and the handle is at Forest with two R's. And, you know, I definitely encourage people to reach out. Um, and I definitely, you know, try to try to foster positive dialogue. I know there's a lot of controversy around, uh, around nutrition and that makes it fun, but it also, you know, I just try to keep it positive dialogue. So I encourage people to, to stay on that track. Awesome. Thanks so much for taking time to join us today. Thank you, Dana. Thank you so much for having me. That was another episode of Fast Talk Femme. Subscribe to Fast Talk Femme wherever you prefer to find your favorite podcasts. Be sure to leave us a rating and a review. The thoughts and opinions expressed on Fast Talk Femme are those of the individual. As always, we love your feedback. Get in touch via social. You can find Fast Talk Labs on Twitter and Instagram at Fast Talk Labs, where you'll also find all of our episodes. You can also check them out on the web at fasttalklabs.com. For Dana Lees and Julie Young, I'm Dee Dee Barry. Thanks for listening. <laughs>